Greetings and welcome to another Different Church Podcast. My name is Jarrett and I hope you're having an awesome day. I hope you're ready to be freaked out. I am recording this intro at 6.15 p.m. on Sunday. That's right. I am like doing what I'm supposed to do when I'm supposed to do it. I'm getting stuff done. Uh, We are hitting the town tonight to celebrate my niece's birthday. I can't even remember the last time that... um, I went out, out, you know what I mean? Like, went out to have some drinks, stayed out late. Uh, we are uh, stashing our, our five-year-old with my dad and stepmom tonight. So we're hitting the town. It's going to be fun. I'm getting the podcast done early. So I'm going to schedule this so it releases tomorrow. And I just, I feel like a big boy. So for those of you who have heard me lament about how I always procrastinate and I'm like, recording the intro at like 2 a.m. on a Thursday or something. Not this week, Satan. (laughs) Okay, we got a cool episode for you today. Before we get to that, just a couple quick things. Number one, uh, June is over. Um, June is a huge month for us. We do all sorts of cool pride activities, and uh, this June was no no exception. Um, It was awesome. We did uh, three different events. We had a booth at two like festivals, and then we walked in the parade. <clears throat> we got cool t-shirts. We gave away a ton of stickers, a ton of business cards. Um, I think like 2,000 pieces of like stickers or business cards we were able to give away. Um, we had a really good uh, reception from everybody. They were, they were pumped to see us, and uh, it was great. Just thank you to everyone who was a part of June. Um, whether you were like there in person to volunteer or you donated to make it happen, uh, it was really cool. Um, we are proud to be, you know, a different type of church that exists because there's not a church out there for a lot of people like us. And, uh, we can only make that happen because of you. So thank you so much. You rock, uh, this coming Sunday, we have a special guest speaker, James Vitaglia. Um, I forget what they're talking about, but um, from what I understand, James used to work at like literally Harvard. So I'm expecting this to be pretty cool. And then directly after church, uh, we are going to grab some food and then go hit the skating rink. So if you want to hang out with us and skate, definitely be there this Sunday. It's going to be an awesome time. Uh, I'm already praying right now that nobody falls and like breaks their entire self because, you know, some of us are 40 or a little north of 40 or whatever. Uh, we don't bounce back like we used to. <laughs> uh, I think that's pretty much all we got on the on the calendar right now. Um, uh, small groups are going to be starting again in July, like, like towards the end of July, I believe. So be on the lookout for that. Go to diff.church if you want to connect with us in any way. Um, okay, uh, we are going to jump to the message from this week. Uh, it is one of my favorite types of messages that Hannah does. It's nerdy Bible stuff. And uh, today we're actually talking about Jesus Ascension. Also, happy 4th of July, y'all. Um, you can see I'm in my very fabulous patriotic outfit. Um, I'm a little mad at America at the moment. But also, I don't really want to live anywhere else. So two things can be true. We can be like, hey, do better. And we like to live here just like the church. Hey, do better. And we're not giving up yet. So today is Jesus' ascension. We're going to read a passage from Luke chapter 24, verses 44 through 53, and then we shall discuss. This is what it says. You can follow along on the screen. 
Jesus said to them, that means his disciples, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all the nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are the witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. And when he had led them out in the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and he blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. And then they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple praising God. Okay, we're gonna talk about Jesus' ascension. Some of you may be familiar with this, but even if you're familiar with this, I don't think y'all are like really familiar with this. There is so much historical context that we need to talk about because it is really easy to read a phrase that's like, well, he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Okay, what does that mean? Because Jesus' ascension is one of the foundational tenets of Christianity. So much so that it is like in all of the creeds from the early church. It's in the Apostles' Creed, which dates from the fourth century, which we hold as our foundational statement of belief at different church. Um, Not that you have to hold that. That's just where we land and organize our theological beliefs. Um, But this idea that sometime after Jesus was raised from the dead, he just floated up into the sky. Does anyone else find this weird? No, because you believe he was raised from the dead. (laughs) We already started with a crazy premise. So him floating in the sky is not weird, right? Um, But like, it's way more meaningful than Jesus went up in the sky. We think, we're like, ah, yes, Jesus. We have these pictures of him being like, oh, just floating. He's going up to the spirit in the sky. And we're like, cool. This is actually a very political statement. Um, And to tell you why, we need to think about Roman history for a moment. So Julius Caesar was the emperor of Rome from about 49 BCE to 44 BCE-ish. You probably all know who he is because Shakespeare was obsessed with him and wrote a whole play. And you know the famous line, it too Brute, because Brutus, his friend, frenemy, participated in his murder where he was stabbed to death brutally by his friend Brutus. Um, and all of this is about 45 years before Jesus is born. So after the assassination of Julius Caesar, 44, a comet is said to have appeared in the sky. And his nephew, Caesar's nephew, his name was Octavian because they were very cool back then. Octavian was like, the comet is Caesar ascending to heaven and becoming a god. He is ascending to the gods and becoming a god himself. Starting to follow where I'm going with this. So several years later, Octavian uses this story of Julius Caesar as a comet ascending to the gods and becoming a god himself to solidify his claim to the throne of Rome. And he became Caesar Augustus, who was the emperor when Jesus was born. He ruled for about 45 years. There was even a coin minted by Augustus that said, has his portrait on one side, and the other side was the image of the comet. And it said in Latin, divine Julius meaning Julius Caesar is a god. Um, Also, a lot of his coins were inscribed with Divi Filius, which is Latin for son of God. The deification of his adopted father, Julius Caesar, made Augustus the son of God and God himself. 
And as the emperor slash god of the Roman Empire, he was also called, and tell me if you recognize any of these terms, savior of the world, redeemer, and lord. And after his death, I know you'll be shocked by this, Augustus was said to have ascended to the gods. <laughs> now, Jesus was born during the reign of Augustus. He began his public ministry during the reign of Tiberius, Augustus' stepson, and who shockingly also adopted the title, son of God, because why wouldn't you? <laughs> and so to put this in perspective, when we say, or when Jesus' followers called him the son of God, that is a deliberate act of treason against the Roman government and emperors because that is a title that was already in use. It already belonged to someone. Since before Jesus was born, it belonged to someone. So to declare Jesus was the son of God was not just to be like, oh, he's making some weird blasphemous claim. It was to declare that Caesar was not the son of God. I feel like I should insert, uh, there can only be one joke from Highlander here. There can only be one. The son of God already existed and he was sitting on the throne of Rome. So when the disciples were like, Jesus is the son of God, that wasn't like, oh, Jesus is the son of God. How nice. No. Why do you think Jesus was killed? We talked about this back at Easter. Now, if we had a way of going back in time, getting video footage of what the disciples actually saw around the resurrection and the ascension, I have no idea what we would see. Um, I think it's a great idea that we can't do this, probably because it would just create one billion more conspiracy theories than we already have. We'd be like, look, it's video proof that this happened. And then people would be like, well, this is photoshopped. <laughs> like, it, it would just give us a million more questions. And I don't actually think it is helpful at all to nitpick or argue about details and be like, okay, well, let us spend 10 hours or an entire seminary degree arguing about whether this event actually literally happened and people actually literally saw it. Now, again, we hold to the Apostles' Creed, which does interpret this as an actual historical event. You don't have to agree with that, but like, it's not helpful. Evangelicals get real concerned about, did something happen the exact literal way it was said to have happened? That sometimes is a helpful question, sometimes mostly if you're arguing in an academic setting. The questions we need to be asking of the Bible is not that. It is why was this written down? And why has it preserved for 2,000 years? What was so mind-blowing about this event that the disciples wrote it down and we still have a copy of it today? It's not just Jesus went up into the sky. Like, this is a huge political statement. Now, What's fascinating to me, especially in light of the history of Julius Caesar and Octavian, is that the disciples chose to describe their experience of Jesus' ascension in a way that deliberately rejected the emperor's claim to power. They framed their entire experience of Jesus returning to God through the familiar narrative of the deification of Caesar that everyone around them already knew about. So when they said Jesus ascended to God, people would be like, wait a minute, that's not the tale I've heard. I heard Caesar ascended to God, what, who's Jesus? And actually this goes even deeper because it's not as simple as saying Jesus is Lord, which means Caesar is not. We have to think about the purpose of the entire ceremony. So why was Caesar deified? Because it gave him the right to rule. 
Octavian claiming that Julius Caesar had ascended to heaven and became a god meant that he had divine heritage and therefore the divine stamp of approval on his rule of the Roman Empire. So to disagree that Octavian should be emperor was not to disagree with the Roman army. It was to disagree with the gods. And, you know, like all of Roman life was basically revolving around placating and pacifying the gods because they were crazy. And you just never knew if they were happy with you or not. And they controlled everything, like fertility and famines and wars. And if you, you, you just had to make sure they were happy. And also, you didn't know if they were happy unless things were going well in your life. So Jesus' ascension to heaven is not just going back to where he belongs, heaven. It is confirmation to the disciples and all followers of Jesus that Jesus was indeed the divine son of God. The intended consequence of this is that Jesus gave his followers the right to resist the rule of Caesar. It wasn't just a, hey, Jesus is God statement. It was a act that allowed the disciples to pledge their allegiance to a new empire, a new world order, a new king. In fact, if Jesus' ascension is true, it didn't just allow the disciples to be like, oh yeah, Caesar's not God, we're gonna follow Jesus. It demanded it. Like in a world, in a world where there could only be one divine ruler, to follow Caesar or even just to spend your life pacifying the Romans and trying not to get killed was just as treasonous as it would have been to follow Jesus under the Roman Empire. Perhaps more so, because Caesar was called savior of the world, but he was really only focused on saving Rome. He was really only focused on furthering the interests of a few elite people and on conquering as much of the known world as possible. Jesus' agenda was actually for the entire world to usher in a new world order. I'm going to spare you a lot of Star Wars jokes right now. <laughs> a new world order, the first order. No, that's the bad side. Um, this order, it was built bottom up instead of top down. It was an order where all people were valued and inherently valuable instead of just a few specific elite people. It is an order where God was accessible to people instead of being far out of reach and shrouded behind all of these rules and rituals. It was an order where the last should be first and the sparrows of the field matter and there is no such thing as redemptive violence or retaliation. An order where God themselves valued human life so much that they became human in a tangible way. That demands allegiance to the disciples. It's not as simple as saying, oh, Jesus is Lord. No, Caesar's Lord. Saying Jesus is Lord means you're forfeiting your life in the Roman Empire. But if you don't say Jesus is Lord, you're forfeiting your life in the actual true kingdom. That's what this meant to the disciples. This order is the opposite of Caesar's order. Even the ascension itself is the opposite. So Caesar ascends to heaven, that's the deification of a human. Jesus' ascension is the humanization of God, right? So even while ascending, his word is blessing. It says he is lifted up while he is blessing his followers. He's restoring their agency in a world that has taken it from them completely. He is ordaining them to be agents of ongoing transformation in the world. 
his followers are supposed to continue this work that Jesus started. The incarnation, that's a fancy theology word for Jesus, God became a human. Um, So whenever you hear incarnation, just think God became a human. That's what that means. It didn't end with Jesus going up to heaven after his resurrection. John 1.1 says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and the word became flesh and dwelled among us. And we're like, cool. And then it ended. The word is no longer flesh. (laughs) Jesus went back to the spirit in the sky and cool. It didn't conclude when Jesus goes up into the sky, right? The ascension is actually the acceleration of the incarnation. It's the acceleration of God becoming flesh because the word becomes flesh in Jesus and then continues becoming flesh through Jesus' disciples and then through the church and then through all of us. Justo Gonzalez wrote this about the ascension and I find it fascinating. He said this, God did not take on humanity for 33 years in order to simply discard it like a worn out garment. The incarnation did not end with crucifixion and resurrection. On the contrary, what the doctrine of ascension meant is that God is still human. Even now, one of us, a carpenter, an outlaw, a convicted and executed criminal sits at the right hand of the Father. And I would add, and intercedes for us daily. Because of the incarnation, when we look at God, when we approach God, we are not looking at an entirely alien being that has nothing to do with us. We are looking at one of us. That God valued humanity so much that God became human and then chose to stay that way. Does this change your perspective of what's happening in this passage at all? Like, does it make you think more deeply about how crucial and also how insane this narrative was for this little itty-bitty band of Jesus followers living under the shadow of Rome? Now, I must admit that from our modern location in history, we love to, like, get on our high horse and we're like, we can, we just get very uncomfortable, especially progressive Christians. We're like, I just don't like, I just don't know why the Bible would be like that. Well, first of all, because they're not woke. <laughs> uh, also, second of all, that was 2,000 years ago, but in time frame, like, they might have as well have been in another universe. Like, can you imagine giving someone who lived in the time of Jesus a Twizzler? <laughs> Their brain would explode, right? This, it's a completely different space. From our great vantage point where we know everything, of course, no one's ever in 2,000 years from now going to be like, oh, those Christians, what dum-dums. <laughs> those Christians in 2022. No. We get uncomfortable with the idea of this three-tiered universe that the, the Gospels in the New Testament assume as fact that there is the underworld below us, our world in the middle, and where do the gods live? The sky. They don't live... They had no concept of a round earth. Where they're like, the God, so the, the, they would never have been like, okay, so hell is in the center of the earth? Would it, they, nothing. They had no concept of this. So of course, in like Carl Sagan, who rejected many things about Christianity, almost everything, but he made a really hilarious statement. And he was like, if Jesus were to have ascended from the earth, he probably wasn't as snarky, but if Jesus were to have ascended from the earth at the speed of light, he still, 2,000 years later, would not have made it out of our galaxy. (laughs) He'd still be in space somewhere, just la, 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 la. 
Of course, this is just another example of the problems we run into when we expect the Bible to tell us stories that fit with our modern understanding of science in the universe. The point of this story is not that Jesus literally flew up in the sky, although I am happy to hold space for that literally happening. In fact, the Pentecostal in me is like, yes. <laughs> the more miraculous, the better. <laughs> like, I totally, Jesus said it, and I believe it. No, I'm not going there. <laughs> like, that's very cool to me. That's not the point. And it wasn't the point for Jesus' disciples then either. The point was that in ancient language, Jesus is the true ruler of the universe. That's what this meant. Now, an, under, an ancient understanding is not the only problem we have with this vertical framing of like humans and God up here. This binary opposition, like humans are here, God is here, where did this come from? Platonic dualism that was very common in Greek and Roman thought. Like there's a very distinct separation. There's, he there's heaven and earth, there's sacred, there's profane. You don't get up there. If you do, you're a God like Caesar. And this is where Western theology and Christianity has been born from. So most of our theology is influenced by this. And actually, it's very interesting because if you dive into indigenous theologies or African theologies, Latin America, South American theologies, they don't have this same influence. Their influence is not this three-tiered, separate, platonic dualism. And when, if we think just in European Christianity alone, the violence that has been inflicted through the centuries. The dualism is very apparent, right? Because in the interest of power and control, the church has maintained that some people have divine connection and some people do not, usually based on like what you specifically believe slash what church you adhere to slash what country you live in. Sorry about where you were born. Whoops. <laughs> You're just going to hell, sorry. Because <laughs> you were born in a different country. And this has served as a justification for Christians to subjugate and persecute people, which as I hope you gathered from our discussion about a new world order a few minutes ago, is the opposite of the point Jesus was making. Our human perception of God has always like evolved with our perception of power. So when power was symbolically located above us in the ancient world with God in the sky and Hades below and us in the middle, God was symbolically up there. So of course Jesus had to go up. But since the enlightenment, We've taken this vertical idea and we've made it like more horizontal. So the power center is not up there anymore. It's now in the center, which sounds great. But lest we get all holier than thou, uh, this has not at all fixed our problem of dualism. It has not at all fixed our problem of binaries, like symbolically locating the power, the power center of at the center of anything, whether it's a church or a family or a city or a country or a culture, it still doesn't give everyone equal standing. It still privileges the people who are closest to the center and it pushes people out on the margins. What we need is a concept of God that breaks down all of these hierarchies and breaks down all of these circular diagrams. What we need is the understanding of God the ascension gives us. God does not exist only in some inaccessible place outside of space and time. The spiritual and human worlds, whether you're going this way or this way, are not irrevocably separated, where there's like tiny little doors occasionally between the realms. Instead, the visible and the invisible, the human and the divine, are overlapping and intertwining in a myriad of ways in the same realm 
the human realm is exploding with divine contact. This one we tend to agree on. We're like, yeah, seems right. But just as important, the divine realm has been changed and affected by the incarnation of Jesus and the ongoing incarnation of God with us in Jesus' followers. The divine realm has been affected by humanity. And maybe we need to change our perspective of God as overall, like Julius Caesar, above all, to God is around all, enveloping all. God envelops this immense world of which we are a part, where God and creation are not next to each other, but are intertwined with each other, where God holds all things. How would that affect our everyday faith? To think that our relation to God is a constant reality. To maybe the words of Paul in Acts 17 would make sense when it says God is in whom we live and move and have our being. I think we tend to get a little binary and we tend to think, oh, I have to pray so I can talk to God. Sure, prayer is great. And God is already talking to you. You are already talking to God with every breath you take. Is it great to further the conversation? Yes, and very necessary. But to think that we have to do physical activities or mental activities so that we can somehow connect with God is the opposite of what Jesus was doing. He was saying, no, I'm here. And I've gone back to heaven, but I'm still here because the realms are together. Now, I'm gonna end with this. It is impossible to think of the ascension without being reminded of another verse later in the New Testament that's like, surely I am coming soon. Jesus ascends and then immediately we're like, he's coming back though, right? Because for us, linear time is not just a necessity. It is like, it's not a way of life. It's how life is organized. We can't even comprehend the idea of time not existing. Surely I'm coming soon. And if you grew up like me, that was at any second. And you better be ready because you're getting raptured. <laughs> or maybe you're not and there's just a puddle of clothes. <laughs> maybe you're not getting raptured because you just think God is on your side. No, that's a whole other sermon as well. We're going to do Revelation at some point. Spoiler alert, the rapture is not in Revelation. That's my fighting words for today. Surely I am coming soon. Jesus leaves and they're like, okay, he's coming back though, right? Is it tomorrow? And we're like, we're New Testament people. Are we? Because the New Testament was written in like a hundred years. And the Old Testament was written in like a thousand and we are 2,000 years removed from Jesus. So we're New Testament people in the sense that we have Jesus, like we have this understanding that Jesus brought and we have the New Testament, but we are Old Testament people in the fact that we are so far removed from the actual event that most of what we are doing has to be taken on faith because we have no proof. And like I said, if we had video, even if we had proof, we'd be like, and then some people would be like, Jesus said it and I believe it, so bless God. And then other people would be like, and I believe in science, so we should fight each other. <laughs> How do we think of this eternal possibility where we're wrapped up in the life of God who is the beginning and end of time and everything in the middle and there is no middle? Soon, the word soon. Because soon is this always present, always potential, beautiful, urgent, 
hopeful word to all of us who are inclined to act as if this one precious life we get is not a gift. God calls all of us. Jesus, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, the Redeemer, the Lord, the true meaning of those titles that Caesar appropriated. That God calls all of us to put into effect this new world, no matter who we are or what we've done or where we think we're going. God calls everyone, those of us who are not ready to yet to hand over our safety and comfort for other people's. And those of us who think about safety so little that we actually endanger people. God calls all of those who cannot imagine that we have more power than the empire we are living under. God calls those of us whom the empire is benefiting and those of us whom the empire is crushing. God calls those of us who come from legacies of supremacy and patriarchy and racism and those of us who come from legacies of tribalism and bitterness and retaliation. God calls those of us who cannot bear the thought of showing mercy until punitive justice has been done. And God calls those of us who are desperately seeking mercy and to avoid the just consequences of what we have done. God calls all. It is not too late to join the revolution. It is not too late also to upend our ideas about revolution itself and begin as Jesus did, not with judgment, but with a blessing.